Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. Our guest today is Professor George Derek Musgrove, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the author of Rumor, Repression, and Racial Politics, How the Harassment of Black Elected Officials Shaped Post-Civil Rights America, which came out in 2012 and which is a book that I teach, and co-author, along with Chris Myers-Ash, of Chocolate City, a History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, which just came out at the end of last year. Yes, 17. Um, and and uh, is published by University of North Carolina Press and is really a massive book, um, 608 pages and sort of a, a really a definitive history of race and democracy in the nation's capital. And um, Derek, who I've known for many years, very happy to have you here. I want to have a really a wide-ranging conversation with you about your work, because your work really uh, traverses civil rights, black power, uh, race, democracy, uh, the black freedom struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, uh, I think, evolved very, very nicely, because in a way, your first book is really the first history of looking at this idea of black harassment in, in the post-civil rights era of elected officials, um, the way in which when we think about um, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, you have a whole group of black elected officials from Adam Clayton Powell to Julian Bond. And then uh, when you think about in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, another group who are being um, initially under the target of uh, FBI and counter counter surveillance uh, and counterintelligence, but then um, being investigated by the Department of Justice. And so, in a lot of ways, the way I read your book, your first book, is that it really casts a strobe light on the fact that right after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, it's not like everything was great. And black people just were able to elect a whole new generation of elected officials. And that was that was fine. What what you see here in this your first book is really the seeds of what we're eventually going to see with the Shelby v. Holder decision that there's voter suppression um, at every single uh, moment that black people are trying to get access to citizenship. There's really pushback. Yes, absolutely. So I I should say initially that. You know, that book really starts off with me looking at uh, Baltimore. I, I'd planned to write my dissertation on uh, the transition from protest to politics in Baltimore. And uh, one of the central figures in that transition, Clarence Mitchell III, the son of the famed NAACP uh, 101st Senator Clarence Mitchell uh, Sr., um, you know, essentially says, that's not the story. Don't talk about Baltimore. That's interesting, but what I really got for you is that the Reagan administration put me in jail for being a black politician. Um, and it was, it was really quite helpful, I think, that he was the person that brought me to the subject. Because, you know, I, I, I knew that he had done some things that were legally questionable in his political career. And if you look at, for instance, The Wire, uh, there's a figure on there that's actually modeled on Clarence Mitchell, and he is a, a dirty politician. Uh, you know, he, he's- Clay kind of, Davis. Yes, Clay Davis. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy that you know that. Um, and so I said, okay, you know, I need a bit more information, right? I, I can't just take this single source's word for it. And of course, that would be bad history anyway. So I, I go into the records and I, I just find all of these people 
from, you know, William Clay in uh, St. Louis to Adam Clayton Powell in New York to Richard Arrington, the mayor of Birmingham. And this is across time and space that I'm finding these claims where they're saying, look, the federal government is out to get us as black leadership. And so it, it created this sort of this, this odd riddle for me, right, which is that I had some subjects who I thought maybe deserve some government scrutiny. It might have done things that were, uh, you know, a, a not quite a, a on top of the table, right? Other people who I had a pretty solid understanding, it, you know, and that's people like Adam Clayton Powell who, who really reveled in sort of violating the norms of Congress, for instance. And then I have people who, who seemed far more innocent, who, who appeared to really have not deserved government scrutiny. And they're all getting lumped into this, this uh, group of people who were investigated by, by the federal government, but also some state governments. And I wanted to understand how, what, what, was, what was going on there and what problem it presented for African-Americans in the post-civil rights period. Um, and the book is, is my, I think, somewhat tortured uh, 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 you know, response to the question is what was going on and, and, and how did, you know, what problem did that pose for African-Americans uh, as they transitioned into the political realm? Well, I, the, the way in which I read it, especially when I think about the historiography of the civil rights black power era, when you're looking at the mayor of Chula, Mississippi, who mm -hmm. gets indicted and, and, and gets sent to jail because of political enemies, people at the local um, level, local political level in black belt counties in right. Alabama and Mississippi, um, and where there's really this white supremacist pushback, I think it's extraordinary and really hugely important. Um, one of the things in my, and I've read this book several times, but in my latest reading of it, I was really struck by how a lot of um, what was known as harassment and this this really, I would say, a politics of racial delegitimation mm -hmm. of these, these political officials, um, they did that playbook against Barack Obama, the Republican yeah. Party, the GOP, as soon as he got into office. They tried it during the election, but I think it would have been interesting, and I don't know if uh, you know Obama had a chance to read this book, but I think he, he would find real similarities between real aspects of how um, um, the, the right wing, um, and whether this was through the FBI at times, whether it was through the Department of Justice at other times, um, um, different nonprofit groups, think tanks, uh, really delegitimated and spread rumors and innuendos. You think about the whole idea of Obama and the birther mm -hmm. movement. The birther movement is a racist rumor that caught fire with constituents, white constituents in the Republican Party. But even there were white Democrats who also believed it, that the president of the United States was not born in Hawaii uh, on August 4th, 1961, but he had actually been born in Kenya. Right. He had been born in Kenya. And obviously Donald Trump um, became the main articulator of this birther rumor and really used that to build and consolidate this white nationalist, white supremacist base and be elected uh, the 45th president of the United States. So I want us to get into that even away from, because your book definitely gets into the weeds of harassment ideology, conspiracy theory, all these different things, Lyndon LaRouche, all this. Yeah. But I want to get into right now um, really these these structures, this this way in which, because it reminded me, we've read Ron Walters and we read the biography of um, um, uh, Robert Smith of Ronald Walters. Nice, nice. And what's interesting is Ron Walters, <laughs> Ron Walters in his book on white nationalism and white power really makes an argument that one of the things that Ronald Reagan was successful in doing 
was uh, delegitimating the morality of the, the, the black freedom struggle. Right. The idea that when you think about there's a time by 63, 64, 65, it's a short-lived time, but there's a moment where uh, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson are saying that this is a political and moral good, this right. idea of black freedom, this idea of black citizenship, and that the, the, the assaults on affirmative action, but also these attacks on these officials too, just made this idea of black morality something that was passe, and really they elevate this idea of reverse racism, yeah. this idea that um, the, the struggle for black citizenship is not this moral project. Yeah, so, you know, Ron Walters has this wonderful line that he would repeat a great deal before he passed, uh, long before his time a couple of years ago. Uh, and that is that, you know, at the center of the struggle for, for black equality, particularly in the post-civil rights period, is this, this constant effort on the part of these two warring factions to define uh, the black freedom struggle as either, is either legitimate and therefore deserving of uh, some, some, you know, sort of corrective action on the part of the state or as illegitimate and potentially criminal. Right, uh, And so what you see, particularly in the 60s and 70s, which is sort of the first half of the book, um, is this presumption uh, on the part of many law enforcement, uh, and that goes for both state and, and federal, um, that independent black politics is, is sort of on its face illegitimate potentially criminal, suspect, worthy of investigation. Um, and so, for instance, there's a moment in the early 1970s where everybody in the CBC, literally everybody in the CBC is under investigation. And the CBC right. is a Congressional Black Caucus. Yes, correct. Uh, and you know, one or two of those people deserved it. Like, like let's let's be fair, right? I'm I'm not I'm not trying to start with the presumption that black elected officials uh, investigation of a black elected official is on its face um, uh, illegitimate. Um, but in many of the cases, the, the sort of the animating reason for the investigation was that this person is engaged in you know sort of uh, black nationalist um, politics in that city, right? Uh, but that's how they all got there, right? Um, and the fact of the matter is that much of their opposition was engaged in sort of popular front white politics in a lot of the cities where they were coming from. Um, and so, so the FBI in particular had, had a real double standard there. Um, many local police departments had a real double standard there. Um, what we see as we transition into the 80s, though, uh, is uh, what I would argue is sort of the weaponization of the, the Department of Justice. And Rudy uh, Giuliani is big here. And that's, you know, the, the remarkable part of this book for me is that a lot of these people sort of come back in Bob a Bob Mueller life. is here. Yes. Um, um, Mueller, Giuliani, Bob Barr, uh, who's I think now retired, but and Jefferson Sessions. Yeah, Jeff Sessions uh, so, is here too. And, and one of the through lines that you can see here, I think, and, and what I like about the, what I liked about this story when I first picked it up is that it gives us a nice narrative through line for the post civil rights period. And so, if you look at Jefferson Sessions, you know Jeff Sessions uh, is a low level prosecutor in the Justice Department. When Reagan uh, is elected in 1980, he's elevated to U.S. Attorney, I think, for the Middle District of Alabama. And one of the first things that he hears from the people that he considers his constituents, who are white Alabama Democrats and Republicans, uh, is that they believe that black folks in the Black Belt counties, which are a, a belt of counties that go right across the middle of the state that are roughly 40 to 80 percent black, um, the activists, the black activists in those counties had 15 years after the Voting Rights Act finally sort of cracked the code, right? Um, Five years after the Voting Rights Act, 10 years after the Voting Rights Act, what essentially is happening is that whites in those counties are using all of these tricks to keep blacks from actually gaining office, 
So in some counties, they'd be solid majority of the population. But what local white registrars would do was send absentee ballots to like Detroit where white folks had moved and they knew they had moved and they knew that they no longer lived in the county. But they would literally write letters to them and say, hey, I know you don't live here anymore. This is in print. You can find this in the archives, in in Dick Arrington's archives in Birmingham, right? I know that you don't live here anymore, but we're a little worried that a faction is going to take over the county. So we need you to send your absentee ballot vote back. Which is illegal. Which is stone cold illegal, right? It's voter fraud, right? So these these are white registrars and residents. Those same people are turning around after they've committed the, this voter fraud, and they're saying to Jeff Sessions, we think that black people in these counties are committing voter fraud. Now, why are, what are these black people doing that they believe is, is untoward? They're walking around with absentee ballots because they know white residents are using them and using them illegally. And they're saying, look, we're going to use those same absentee ballots to just increase legitimate black turnout. And so they literally get in a car. Uh, big old box of absentee ballots and walk them door to door. Sit in the next room while a person fills them out and then go mail them. And in Alabama at that time, that was legal. I'm sure everyone's heard of the case in North Carolina where that was done in the last election. I think it's the 9th Congressional District. That is no longer, that is not legal there. But in Alabama at that time, it was legal. Um, And in some of these counties, they got black turnout up to like 80%. And black folks started winning control of these counties for the first time since Reconstruction. And all the local DAs file cases against these black voting rights organizers saying they're committing voting fraud. Again, Even though there's voting fraud that white folks are committing is, in Alabama. And that is documentable. It's right? Um, and they lose the cases because in many cases they would have black folks on these grand juries that they impanel to investigate. So they appeal to Jeff Sessions and to his two other U.S. attorneys, uh, his colleagues in the Reagan Justice Department, and they bring the cases. And so here you have all three U.S. attorneys in Alabama trying to make sure that these voting rights activists, most of whom, by the way, were part of the campaigns that give us the Voting Rights Act, right? Some of whom actually were in the mule train uh, that delivered Martin Luther King's casket to his grave, right? And these people are 15 years out from the Voting Rights Act finally actually getting the fruits of that legislation, And the first thing that happens to them is the U.S. attorney comes in and tries to put them in jail for doing that. Um, And it's Jeff Sessions, uh, another guy named Donaldson and and one other in um, uh, the Southern District. Um, And they fight him tooth and nail, take it all the way to Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, Alabama is ablaze with civil rights activity uh, in the the early 1980s because of these cases. In fact, the longest civil rights march in the history of the country happens in 1982, from the Alabama Black Belt to Washington, D.C. It starts off as a campaign to free two women from Pickens County, Alabama, who had been accused, accused of voter fraud. But then once they get to Montgomery from Pickens County, they just decide we're going to keep going and we're going to go to D.C. to lobby for extension of the Voting Rights Act because it's the same struggle, wow. right? So all of these people essentially make sure that Jefferson Sessions doesn't get a federal judgeship, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what happens, and, and he is the first Reagan judicial nominee to be rejected by the Senate. And eventually right? becomes U.S. Attorney General. But the trick is he goes back to Alabama, builds himself a career, and then ends up becoming Attorney General. But, but that shows, I think, um, that we, we can't talk about this as a, as a progress narrative. We can't talk about this as a seamless transition from protest to politics. What you see is a transition from protest to politics in the 60s and 70s, a movement back to protest in the 80s 
in response to this Reagan Justice Department repression. Um, and even though those folks are momentarily beaten back, and I'm talking about the Reagan folks, they eventually come back in the whirlwind in 2016, in this case, with Jefferson Sessions through Trump. Um, and what's, such, what's so shameful is that, you know, for much of his time in the Senate, Jefferson Sessions is seen as this sort of kooky racist from Alabama, right, um, who's constantly talking about how we keep black and brown people out of the country. Um, but because we get a kooky racist from New York to be president, uh, he then taps this kooky racist from Alabama to be our chief law enforcement officer. And there you go. I want to talk about the new book, um, Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital. And of course, this year, 2019, is the 400th anniversary of 1619 in Jamestown. Yes. And, and, and 20 enslaved Africans coming, coming to uh, the shores of what's going to become the United States of America. Uh, Washington, D.C. is undergoing tremendous transformations right now. It's mm -hmm. being gentrified. There's all this investment happening in the city. Um, one, what was your interest in, in, in writing, you know, co-writing such a book in such a massive um, history yeah. that spans centuries? So uh, first off, let me say uh, Happy Emancipation Day. Uh, April 16th, 1862 was uh, the day. Uh, that uh, President Abraham Lincoln signed and it went into effect, the D.C. Emancipation Act of 1862. Uh, it was the first time that the federal government put its weight behind emancipation, and it was the only time that the federal government put its weight behind compensated emancipation awesome. uh, during the Civil War. And that happened eight months before the Emancipation Proclamation took hold. Uh, and so today is that day. Uh, so they're partying back in D.C. Oh, that's great. Um, now, we, we decided to do the book uh, for many of the reasons that you state. Um, when we sat down to do this book in 2011, uh, D.C. had just, for the first time in two generations, slipped below a 50% black population. Um, and for Chris Myers-Ash and I, uh, my co-author, and Chris is actually a D.C. native. I, I grew up in Baltimore. Um, we had known nothing but the chocolate city, right? Uh, this majority black uh, uh, metropolis that was not just you know, sort of distinguished by being majority black, but was distinguished by being a center of black political power in the region uh, and uh, as a center of black, black political culture, black culture in the region, right? And so it was really those three things that made it a chocolate city. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, with, with the end of, of the black majority, um, you know, you didn't have that, that creative tension between those three things. Uh, and the city really has changed quite dramatically. Now, out on the streets of the city in 2011, everyone was talking about that. Uh, new residents were talking about it, and they, they really didn't um, understand why everyone was so up in arms. Okay. Uh, older residents were talking about it and were really up in arms because they thought that new residents didn't understand the history that they were, they were stepping into. Uh, and so we said, look, Everybody out there is talking about this. They don't have a good book that will allow them to answer these questions. Yes. Let's go ahead and give it to them. So we did. I want to talk about, um, you know, in your previous book, Marion Barry is a part of this and the sting against Marion yeah. Barry. And when we think about D.C., I think about black political power. I think about Howard University mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century. Um, what is this history of race and democracy in the nation's um, capital and, and, you know, how does it shape the contemporary debate right now mm. over, you know, uh, black equality, the black freedom struggle, uh, and really this whole idea of sort of resegregation that Jeff Chang and other people talk about? Because on some levels, D.C. has been a urban ghetto 
and now is being resegregated, but in another way, you know, in terms of white, it's going to be, it's, it's turning into this predominantly um, white, yeah. very wealthy, very elite um, status symbol of a city with a baseball team and with 16th and U Street transformed for the very first time since the 1968 urban rebellion where yeah. Stokely Carmichael and people were at. So I want to yeah, I mean, it, so the figures have just come out this year. They're stunning. Uh, D.C. has, if you, if you compare it to other states, it has the highest black unemployment of any state, right? Um, it has the highest level of gentrification, again, if you compare it to major American cities of any city, right? Uh, higher than Brooklyn, any place else. Um, it also has a black mayor, uh, and it has one of the most affluent black populations in the country, yes. right? And so one of the things that we wanted to do, particularly with the later chapters of the book, as you, as you, you sort of intimate, is, is to understand how in God's name that occurred, right? Um, and what we found was that there's a really great sort of post-civil rights era story that you can tell very seamlessly in Washington, D.C. Um, D.C. is remarkable in that, you know, for much of its history, it actually had no voting at all. Uh, after the fall of Reconstruction in 1874, uh, the city is stripped of the franchise completely, black and white residents. Nobody votes, right? Um, and, and the idea is, was one that really appealed to sort of conservative Republicans, which is that you'd have governance by managers. Uh, it appealed to conservative Democrats because you wouldn't have black people voting. They were 30% of the population. Um, and once it gets set in the 1870s, the city has no local governance at all until roughly the 1960s. But then in a burst of Cold War liberal reform, we get a vote in presidential elections. Our first time is in 1964. We get school board elections, oddly enough, two weeks after the April 1968 riots. we get a non-voting delegate in Congress in 1971. Which is Walter Fauntroy. Walter Fauntroy, a critical figure in uh, post-civil rights era black politics. I would argue one of the more remarkable strategists uh, that people have not written about in any substantive way um, of the 1980s. Um, and then, of course, we get a home rule government, an actual city council and a mayor uh, in 1974. And with all these positions, and this is a really interesting part, they're all staffed, literally all staffed by civil rights, black power, and anti-poverty activists. I mean, if you look at our first city council in 1975, um, 11 of the 13 members on that council are one of those groups, civil rights, black power, anti-poverty, yeah. including the white members, right? Uh, it's, a t- it's two of the black members that, that are more conservative, right? Um, but here's the problem, because, you know, you think that, they're like, like, we're done. There's the keys to the kingdom, right? We've got a city government, But when Congress cedes control of Washington, D.C., it does a couple of things that make it almost guaranteed to fail. It settles it with a pension obligation to mostly white retired workers who live outside the city because they moved to the suburbs or moved away. But it never invested money in its pension. So they're guaranteed to go broke over the pensions from Jump Street, right? It doesn't allow the city to tax commuters. Right. And, you know, we, we, we were getting, you know, doubling our population every single work day through commuters. Right. Um, and about half of the, the land, roughly 40%, 43% of the land in the city was non-taxable because it was universities, embassies, and the federal government, right? So it had an economic structure that, that was almost guaranteed to go into the red, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, of course, um, that the city gets home rule, uh, the suburbs open up to African Americans. And so middle-class African Americans begin to move out into Prince George's County uh, in the 1970s, about 70,000 over the course of the decade. So that means that the population you can tax is getting poorer over time. Um, 
And what's remarkable is that Marion Barry, who we know of as someone who's really a mismanager, was actually an amazing manager early on, right? Um, straightened out the books, audited the city's government's uh, uh, books for the first time ever in the city's history. Um, and through really aggressive affirmative action programs, transfers millions of dollars in wealth to African-American businesses and uses the city government as a jobs program to build the black middle class, right? Um, but the, the bills come due. Uh, there's a real estate recession in the early 90s, and on the back end of that, because uh, real estate is our major industry outside of the federal government, city goes bankrupt. And when it goes bankrupt, Congress and the council and the city council adopt a neoliberal governance model, and they focus on bringing well-to-do people back to the city. That's the only way you can get um, the city's books back in the black. And that means that gentrification becomes our financial policy. Mm right? You have to get high-income people back to the city. And in a region where white wealth is 10 times black wealth, that meant white people. Uh, so the city government, a black city government, is pulling large numbers of white residents back into the city. And over the last 20 years, they've displaced huge numbers of poor African-Americans. And so the black out-migration of the last couple of years is poor African-Americans. I want you to talk about uh, Barry and the fact that our narrative is Marion Barry, who's former chairman of Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, yeah. big time civil rights activist, you know, founder of Pride Inc., you know, colleague of Stokely Carmichael and these different black power activists. Many people who I've interviewed as well who say if you were going into the den of, of racism in Mississippi, Alabama, you want that cat with the you. person who you want with you. And again, I think our listeners don't understand the the, the level of fear and the level of physical violence and death that was shadowing um, civil rights activists in the context of the 1950s and 1960s, where you went into these small towns and you could literally be killed. You could yeah. literally be killed. And so Marion Barry, in that way, was you know a hugely heroic figure with his own flaws, with his own demons, contradictions, all these different things. But I want you to talk about wh wh why is the narrative of Marion Barry the black mayor who smoked crack. And certainly, mm. you know, there's been books, Dream City, these books that really sort of exploit Barry's legacy. Um, certainly there was um, wrongdoing and malfeasance in the administration. Right. But at the same time, um, there was also a lot of positive done um, for the city. Uh, so can you talk about Marion Barry in sure. Washington, D.C.? Sure. So. You know, there, there, there are three big books that come out in Barry, and they all come out on the, in the 90s, and, and that's really key, right? So, so the, the ones that you mentioned, Dream City, there's Marion Barry and the Politics of Race, uh, and then there's another one called Marion Barry and the Last of the Black Emperors, and they all come out in the mid-1990s. And that, that moment is important because all of them are trying to explain how things got so bad. That, that's literally what they've set out to do. Mm -hmm. You have to remember, when these people are writing, and their books come out right after, City is the murder capital of the United States. Um, you can buy houses for taxes in most areas uh, uh, that are now the center of gentrification because they're so dangerous uh, and, and the drug trade is so, so flagrant. Um, and uh, the city's broke. And I think a lot of folks right there in the moment, and, and all the folks who wrote those books were journalists, literally uh, all of them, um, wanted to give folks uh, an answer to that question, how did things get so bad? Um, and their through line in a lot of cases was Barry. Um, you know, and, you know, Marion Barry played a large role uh, in, in the managerial problems that the city government had. And, and I think that's a legitimate sort of a description of his failures, right? Um, 
With time, though, I think people have tried to step back and look at the structural environment in which he was operating. Um, and there's no question that the city was set up to fail financially in the way that home rule was handed over to uh, the government. Uh, it, it's a lot like Puerto Rico. I mean, there was just sort of a, a, no matter who you were as a governor, if you were going to take care of your constituents, there's no way you could balance the books, mm-hmm. right? Now, I think halfway through his maybe second term, Marion Barry um, just got lazy. Um, you know, he, he really allowed his appetites for women and for drugs in particular uh, to overcome his sense of duty to the city and to his constituents. And he did have significant personal failings in that regard. But it didn't matter who was going to be in that position. The city was going to have serious problems, right? Um, and halfway through his four terms in office and all, um, his, his personal failings appeared. Uh, and he, he you know, was addicted to cocaine for um, at least since the early uh, 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and he began to just check out. Um, and that, that hurt the city tremendously. But, but I think the important thing is that when you step back and you look at him in his totality, um, he was absolutely instrumental in building black political power in Washington, D.C. I'll give you a quick example. So, you know, we're at, we're at the, the, the Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, Center. Um, Lyndon Johnson uh, it really wants home rule for Washington, D.C. in 1965. He can't get a bill through Congress. So in 1967, he reorganizes the city government. At the time, the city has three commissioners that run the city. And he says, okay, look, they're all appointed by the president. I have the prerogative to reorganize the government that I'm, I'm appointing here. And so I'm going to appoint what looks like a council, and I'm going to appoint what looks like a mayor commissioner, right? Um, and Marion Barry and other black power activists in the city said, that's great, Mr. President, but you have no mechanism for getting input, input from us. So they organize a freedom vote. They literally outfit station wagons as mobile polling stations and drive around the city. They, you know, they put together polling stations at the local Elk Center and the local Masons. Um, and they have, hundred, they have you know, tens of thousands of D.C. residents voting for who they want to be on this appointed council, right? And so they're taking very specific types of politics from the Mississippi Delta, for instance, mm-hmm. bringing them to Washington, D.C., and building sort of, you know, sort of democratic muscles that have atrophied among the entire population, right, um, uh, uh, into the, the nation's capital. And they would just keep doing that year after year. And so... That's 67, 68, they're the first school board elections. Marion Barry becomes a member of the school board two years after that, right? Um, then he runs for the council in 74. And so you, so you see, you know, sort of him there at every step of the building of a democratic infrastructure of the city. And he has to get a lot of credit for shaping that infrastructure and for making sure that poor D.C. residents have access to that infrastructure. He then also comes in as mayor and cleans up the city government, which had just been left him as a mess by Congress. Um, it's only later on that, that he's just not able to do what, what uh, um, you know, he needed to do to keep the city uh, from falling apart. My, uh, final, my final question is, uh, Washington, D.C., now in 2019, and racial justice, racial equality, economic justice, w- what's going to happen? 
So, you know, Marion Barry makes a big comeback in 1994. Uh, uh, and, you know, he's, he's a, year out of, a year and a half out of jail and has his last term, 94, 94 to 98. And every mayor since has, has really been something of a technocrat. They've, they've um, really downplayed issues of race and, and, and sort of transferring re- resources from uh, one community to another and really just focused on making sure the trains run on time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and as part of that process, they've given a lot of money to businesses to move back into the city. They've subsidized a lot of efforts to make sure that high-income people move back into the city. And the city is economically booming. I mean, we've had balanced budgets every single year since 2001. Um, uh, the city looks better. Um, the city has more people. Our population is growing for the first time, I think, since the 50s. Um, and it is one of the most racially unequal places in the country. Uh, and, you know, I think that one of the things that, that we, we try to get across in the last chapter uh, and that the city has to face in 2019 uh, is that we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, th- there was a really serious management problem within City Hall um, uh, when Marion Barry was there. And the folks who have come in after him have tried to correct that. And they've done, I think, a good job overall. What they got rid of as well, when it came, you know, along with bad management, was a serious effort to uh, move resources from the haves into the have-nots. Uh, and absent that serious effort, uh, inequality has ballooned uh, in the nation's capital. And, and that is probably the saddest commentary on, on their leadership. All right. Thank you. Um, it's been great talking to you, Professor uh, Derek Musgrove, George Derek Musgrove, who's Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, about really both of his books, uh, Rumor, Repression, and Racial Politics, How the Harassment of Black Elected Officials Shaped Post-Civil Rights America, and also the latest book, which is a real massive tome, uh, Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in a Nation's Capital, uh, co-authored with Chris Myers-Ash. It's really a brilliant book um, that I would recommend everyone Uh, seeking out to purchase. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Peniel. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.